The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Church, thank you so much for joining us today. If you were with us last week, we began to look at the precursor to Jesus' public ministry. And who came before him was John the Baptist. We've read about him as an infant in his mother Elizabeth's womb back in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. And now, the beginning of chapter 3, he is the focal point. He's the one who came before. He's the one who paved the way. He went out into the wilderness and he began to preach and to baptize all all those who came to see him. He was a phenomenon in this time. People were coming from all around the cities that surrounded the Jordan River just to hear John the Baptist preach. And his preaching was very simple. He called people to repentance. He called people to change their lives, change the direction they're going, turn their hearts back to God. He did so through his preaching. Then he would baptize them for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he was doing. And he did so for one very, very important reason. He knew, he knew the Messiah was coming and he knew the time was now, the time to prepare your hearts, the time to get ready. It was right now. And that's no different today, but really today's message is part two of last week. They, they go together. We're going to look at Luke chapter three, verses 15 through 20, and just kind of finish that section. And as we do so though, I want you to go ahead and place yourself back into the story. You have John the Baptist out in the wilderness, tens of thousands of people coming to hear him preach, hear this new message about a promised hope, the Messiah that is to come. And as we pick it up in Luke chapter three, verse 15, I want you to see the wishful thinking of the crowd. Here it goes. The people were waiting expectantly, expectantly for the Messiah. But they were all wondering, they were wondering in their hearts, they were wondering in their hearts, if John might possibly be the Messiah, could it be him? Now the word wondering right there, it's a very specific word in the Greek and it means to desire or wish. And you go, well, why wouldn't they translate it that way? Well, it's a hard word to translate, but I want you to think about it like this. Go back to the last time in your life you had a crush on someone. You would think to yourself, I wonder if they like me. And if you have a crush on them and you want to be in a relationship with them, your wondering is really a wish or a desire. And that's the same exact emotion that these who are gathered here by the Jordan River, that's what they're feeling. I wonder, I wonder, could, could, could it be him? Could he be the Messiah? It'd be awesome if he is, because we're already here. We've already seen him. We've heard him preach. It's powerful. His teaching is new and revolutionary. He's baptizing people. Maybe, maybe he could be. I kind of hope he is. I, I wish he was because I would be getting to see it. I would be in the presence of something great. At this point in history, in the first century, the expectation of the Messiah is higher than it had ever been in history. The people were ready and they were ready because of one thing, the hardship that the Jews, the children of God, that they were under at this point. They were under Roman occupation Yes, they were free to move about Jerusalem and Judea and the region as any way they wanted to. But every area of their life was governed by Rome. They were taxed heavily. They couldn't do necessarily whatever they wanted to do. They were under occupation. And they were hoping, because they'd read the Old Testament, the Messiah would just show up now. He'd take care of all this. 
This wouldn't be a problem. And the Messiah they were expecting, they drew together a picture from the Old Testament. They expected three things from their Messiah, three roles the Messiah would fulfill. One, he would be a military conqueror. Specifically, they were hoping as a military conqueror, he'd come in and at least for their region, remove the Roman soldiers, remove the occupation so they'd be free to live as God's children. They got this primarily from Psalms chapter two, verse five. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. Okay, now that's talking about David. So the Lord is at the right hand of David and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will be a mighty conqueror. He will come in and overthrow Caesar. He'll crush kings. That's where they put this together. Now, obviously, Jesus, the Messiah, isn't a military conqueror, but that's what they were hoping for. They wanted their Messiah to be a king. They get that from Isaiah 9, verse 7. If you're going, I think I've heard something like that before. Yeah, it's because at Christmas, almost every year, if you've ever been to a Christmas service, they read Isaiah 9, verses 5 and 6. Talk about, unto us a child is born upon whom the government will rest on his shoulders. But verse 7 says this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will be the most amazing government. He will reign on David's throne, literally the throne in Jerusalem. That's what they're hoping. And over his kingdom. So he's going to sit on the throne. He's going to reign over his kingdom, even though his king, they were expecting his kingdom to just be Judea, just be the Jews. That's what they thought the kingdom was going to be. But his kingdom would be great, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It'll be a kingdom that never be overthrown. So they expected the Messiah to be a military conqueror. They expected the Messiah to be the king. They also expected the Messiah to be a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And I think it's this one. I think it's Deuteronomy 18, 18 that got people thinking that got them expectantly wondering, could it be him? Because remember, they've had 400 years of silence, no prophets for 400 years. And now you get this John guy out in the middle of nowhere starting to speak and he's speaking with power and he's speaking truth. He's a prophet. Well, and he's got tens of thousands of people now who are interested in him. That, that could become loyal subjects who might form an army, at least enough to do some damage in Jerusalem. And well, hey, if he led the army into Jerusalem that kicked out the Romans, he would be the natural king. So it's really illogical thinking on the part of those who were wondering, could he be? It's, it's really illogical. But when you're hurting and when you're hoping, you tend to think illogically. And they put these pieces together and they start to ask themselves, you, you could be him. And there's no doubt in my mind that John, in between his preaching and baptizing, he'd heard the rumblings. He'd, he'd heard the rumors. Oh, some people think I'm the Messiah. They're, they're expecting me to be the Messiah. They're desiring and wishing that I would be the Messiah. And so he squelches it. He completely shuts it down. And here's how he does so. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them all. I love this. It doesn't appear that anyone necessarily ran up and asked, are you the Messiah? But he knew what they were saying. John answered them all. I baptize you with water. We'll come back to that. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I want to take the baptism part and this statement of humility in two separate chunks. 
First, this most beautiful and profound statement of humility. There's one coming. You think I'm the Messiah? Oh, no, 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 no. No, you're so off. There's one coming who is so much greater than me, who is so much more majestic and righteous and powerful. I'm not worthy to touch his shoes. Now, for us, we're going, that's an interesting statement, but let me put that into first century Jewish context. Even middle-class people in first century Jerusalem would have a servant or two in their homes. It's very common to have a servant or two, but the lowest servant in the home, no matter how many you had, if you had a hundred or if you had one, the lowest servant would be responsible for the most unwanted task. And that was this, when the owner of the home would come in from the dusty streets of Palestine, the lowest servant would be in charge of taking off their shoes, washing their feet so that they could enter clean. Now, if that's ringing a bell, that's exactly what Jesus did at the Last Supper. That's what he did to teach humility, to teach servanthood. He washed the feet of his disciples. The lowest servant in the home did this. So what John is saying, and anyone listening would have understood the reference. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant in this guy's kingdom. I'm not worthy to touch his shoes. So what sounds obscure to us is actually one of the most profound statements of humility that you will ever, ever find. Now, there's a piece there. There's a piece in that one verse that says, John baptizes with water and the Messiah, the one to come, Jesus, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is not my message today, but we cannot skip over that phrase. We cannot skip over this concept. I have to unpack it. This is why we preach verse by verse through the Bible here at Summit so that you don't skip these phrases. Because if this was just a topical sermon on humility, which it is, I would not be unpacking this right now. But we teach verse by verse. So here's what we're going to do. And I don't want to derail it by doing this, but we're going to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire that the Messiah, Jesus, brings. So here we go. There are two times, two times in the New Testament that a baptism of the Holy Spirit is specifically mentioned, okay? In Acts chapter two, one through four, and then in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. Those are the two times in the New Testament, a baptism of fire, I'm sorry, of the Holy Spirit is referenced. Let's read both of them. Acts chapter two, verses one through four. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. That's the followers of Jesus, the disciples and others who had followed Jesus. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them in the home, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, that's huge, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So at the very beginning, the first day of the church, Jesus baptizes the church, his followers, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to them in a very demonstrative way. And the one sign that everyone could then see was that they all began to speak in tongues. Now, I know this is a slippery slope because a lot of people have views on what this means, how to interpret it, what's going on. I'm just going to read the facts here. I'm going to just read it for what it's worth. The baptism of the Holy Spirit comes 
at the time that we receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that, that's given. So in the first century, the day of Pentecost, the Christians received the Holy Spirit. They immediately began to speak in tongues. Why? As a demonstration of the fact that they had the Holy Spirit. For anyone who has put their faith in Jesus at that moment, I believe they received the Holy Spirit. And there needs to be evidence. There needs to be demonstration of the Holy Spirit residing in that believer. Now, in this specific context, it is far better for them to speak in tongues than to say, have the gift of the Spirit of mercy or leadership. If on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had fallen and all of them now became great leaders, how would Peter walk out into the street and gather a crowd of tens of thousands? No, the best way to demonstrate that God is here, that the church is now changing, what better way than for them to all begin to speak in random tongues? And if you continue to read it in Acts chapter two, they go out there and everyone heard them in their own language. Everyone could understand, yet they spoke different languages. Very powerful moment. But I said that there were two times, two times in the New Testament that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is referenced. Acts chapter 11, verse 15, it says this, as I began to speak, this is Peter talking, okay? Same person who preached on the day of Pentecost. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he, the Spirit, had come on us at the beginning, At the beginning, the Holy Spirit came on us as a marker, as a demonstration that God was doing something huge. He was beginning his church. Now, Peter is in the house of Cornelius, okay? Cornelius is a Gentile, and God is doing something new and huge right here. He is saying to all of the Jews who believe that they were the only ones that God has accepted, the only ones who would be with God in heaven for eternity— God is saying, no, I need to demonstrate that my mercy, my love, the cross covers all men and all women. And now a Gentile needs to demonstrate that they have been brought into the church. They can now be Christian through faith in me because of the work I did on the cross. And so the best way for me to demonstrate that is for them to begin to speak in tongues. So both times, I believe as a demonstration, as a demonstration, They begin to speak in tongues after they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's keep reading. Okay, this is Luke writing the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, Peter says the same thing. He says, Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is going to do. Believers will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them, meaning Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who am I to think that Gentiles cannot be saved? Who am I to think that Jews are the only one who are part of the promise? Peter saw in a very visible and life-transforming way, oh my goodness, God is for all people not just for those born of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is huge. It changes the game. And those are the two times that baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament. Now, the Holy Spirit identifies all believers. Okay? We need to see fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is given to those who have true faith, and the Holy Spirit is the sustainer and the promised comforter that Jesus gives to all who believe. I want you to know the Holy Spirit is a vital, vital part. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, yet do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, then that is a huge problem because I would say you are not a true believer. I do not think 
that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit at the same time that you're baptized into water. You're immersed in water. I think those are two separate things for this reason. Both of the times it's mentioned in the New Testament, there is no water baptism present. So I think you are baptized in water, like what John was doing, as a demonstration of your faith that you already have. You're already full of the Holy Spirit, but you are baptized to publicly demonstrate your faith in Jesus Christ. It's an outward sign. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus who is the giver of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes those who believe with his spirit. It's an identifier. The Holy Spirit is an identifier, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But John says that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what is this fire baptism? Throughout the entire Bible, fire represents one thing, judgment. So while the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a beautiful, wonderful, great thing that all believers experience, okay? While that's a good thing, the baptism of fire is something you don't want to touch. It's a very, very bad thing. And John goes on to say that, Luke chapter 3, verse 17. Okay, so this is right after he's made this statement. He says his winnowing fork, you would call it a pitchfork, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn. Okay, so the wheat's been thrown on the threshing floor. It's been processed. You need to now separate the stuff you can't use from the stuff that's good, the grain, the kernels that you want to put in your barn and feed yourself and your livestock with. The rest of it is no good. So you take your pitchfork, you scoop up a bunch, you throw it up in the air on a windy day. The chafe blows off. The good stuff falls back to the ground. You pick it up, you put it in the barn. You want to be part of the good stuff. But he will burn up the chafe, with an unquenchable fire. Now, I didn't go randomly find this verse from somewhere else to support the idea that fire represents judgment. This is what John says next, after he says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is clearly a bad thing. It is set apart for those who are the chafe, for those who do not believe. John never held back in his preaching, never held back. He wanted his hearers to know there is a right way and a wrong way. There is the promise of the Messiah and you need to be on board with him. And if you're not, judgment is set aside for you. It does not eliminate God's mercy. He just wants us to know the truth. Let's go back and finish Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And with many other words, John the Baptist exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them, the good news of Jesus. He kept on preaching. He kept on calling people out for their sin. He did so across the board. No one was exempt. Look at the next two verses. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, okay, second in command under Pontius Pilate in his region, so big time dog you don't want to mess with, when he rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, gross, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison, and we'll see that within a year or so, he will have him beheaded. So John didn't hold back from preaching the truth, and the truth was this. Hey, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. You claim to be a Jew. You claim to be a follower of God. You need to repent and turn around. What's Herod do? Put this fool in jail. Get him out of here. But John had fulfilled his purpose. He'd done what he needed to do. And you can go a lot of directions with this passage, but I, I want to go this way. 
I believe the point that Luke is writing about is the humility of John, the importance of humility. John was about his father's work. He knew his role. We covered that last week. He knew he was simply the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one that started to fulfill the prophecy so the Messiah could be revealed. That was his role. That was his job. And he did it very, very well. He was a great vessel used by God for a great purpose. And he was successful because of his humility. I believe that's why he was so successful. He was given opportunity after opportunity, I'm sure, to gain or to take advantage of his popularity. Thousands of people rushing out to hear you every day. It's easy to let that go to your head. And then you start to hear rumblings. Hey, we we think you're the Messiah. We want you to be the Messiah. Many average people would have been like, well, maybe I am. It's not so far-fetched. Look at, look, maybe I am the Messiah. I just didn't know. Maybe when God said you're going to prepare the way, maybe I am the way. But no, 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 not with John. When he started to hear that, his humility kicked in and he said that very famous line, I'm not worthy to untie that man's shoes. Oh no, there's, there's someone coming who's so much greater. I'm just a little piece. I'm just a little piece in this puzzle of God's beautiful redemptive plan. Don't, don't try to elevate me. No, I, I know my place. He knew his role. He said that beautiful quote, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. And so here's what Jesus says about him. Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I think a lot of us, we read that and we go, oh, well, then John's not that great. There's tons of people in the kingdom greater than he. No, I think you're misreading it then. What did Jesus say exactly? Whoever's the servant of all within the kingdom of heaven, whoever is the best servant, that person is the greatest. And I think you have to agree with me that John, John the Baptist, is one of the more humble dudes you're going to find in Scripture, making him one of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. These words that Jesus speaks, it's not saying, oh, he's not that great, there's tons greater. No, it's saying he's amazing because of his humility. Humility is the key. It's what made John the Baptist great. It's what made his ministry so successful. And it's what God used to bring thousands into his kingdom, the preaching and the baptizing of John. So seeing that humility is the king, just a couple questions, or humility is the key, just a couple questions for you as we wrap up today. What are some areas of pride in your life? What are some areas of pride in your life you need God to address? We all have them. Sometimes we're blind to them. But if humility is the key to success, if humility is the key to being great, if humility is truly what unlocks the power of God, then, then okay, within that, what are some areas of pride, the opposite of humility, that you need to address in your life? Number two, how would your life and your walk with God look different if you were more humble? That's a hard question to answer immediately, but just ponder it, okay? Think about it. How would, your life, how would your life and your walk with God look different if you humbled yourself? Number three, what are you currently struggling with? Now, those struggles can come in many forms, right? Many hardships, many, many things going on in our world right now. What are you currently struggling with that if you simply humbled yourself, if you simply humbled yourself 
and you let it go, you would be free from that struggle. I can tell you the number one thing is depression or frustration that comes from comparison. A lot of us have that, a lot of us struggle with that. If you would just humble yourself, and I know that's not easy to do, but if you would just humble yourself and say, just because someone else has it doesn't mean I deserve it. You would do that, the struggle, the pain that comes from that, it'd be gone. Humility really is the key. We can learn so much from the life of John the Baptist, but nothing more important and nothing more powerful than the truth of humility. Humility is the key. Humility is the key for successful life, successful ministry, for fulfillment and contentment. Humility is the key to be used by God for his purposes. Will you choose today to humble yourself, to learn from John the Baptist, to be more like him? Father, help us to do just that, to see this world with a different view that you are God and that we are not. Help us, Lord, to look more like you as the perfect example of humility and servanthood as you gave your life, you stepped out of heaven and came down and took on flesh for us. Give us that example. Give us the example of John and and just encourage us with that, with that story of humility. Lord, to look at our own lives, to see areas of pride, to humble ourselves, to repent from that. And God, to allow ourselves to be in a better position, a better state, to be used by you, to be blessed by you. Lord, to be for you and for others. Help us, help us do that through your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.